Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm excited to have Tara Sophia Moore as a guest on the Creative Giant Show. Tara is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She writes a popular blog on women's careers and well-being at www.taramoremohr.com and has been featured on Today and in publications ranging from Huffington Post to Harvard Business Review to mariashriver.com. In 2010, Tara was named a Girl Champion by the Girl Effect organization, honoring her work on girls' education in the developing world. She's a mother, a wife, a poet, a coach, has an MBA from Stanford, and is the author of the soon-to-be-released Playing Big that will be on the shelves in October 2014. Tara, thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. All righty. So let's start this out on the right foot because there's an easy um, way to misunderstand your work. And, you know, as I was reading the book, um, and, and you and I have talked about it in the past, I, I want to make sure that we get it off on the right foot. So it would be easy to see your work with women and playing big as somehow saying that women have no one to blame but themselves when it comes to playing small. Um, how's that not what you're saying? Right. Yeah, you know, my work is all about the inner work that women can do to play bigger. And so often that is misunderstood as, well, if you're just telling women they need to get over self-doubt or they need to learn to move past fear, aren't you saying this is kind of all their own fault? And I think that's a very reductive and black and white way of looking at the situation. And that in truth, the reality is we come from a past where women were not allowed to participate in professional life, political life, public life. And that had all these internal effects as well as external effects. And a lot of the women's movement has focused on the external effects. What are the policies we need to change, the laws we need to change? All of that's so important. But there hasn't been as much attention to the internal legacy of that history. And so I see what I'm working on as not something that's women solving problems that they've created for themselves, but rather just in this historical moment, women have an inner journey to make to recover from that history. And I would say any group that's been marginalized, uh, oppressed, discriminated against has an internal legacy that they need to recover from, unlearning that needs to happen, um, even as they work towards more tangible external forms of change. Yeah, yeah. What I also like about your work is um, while it is focused on the women's journey, it also is not um, antagonistic against sort of the male-dominated patriarchy culture, right? Because we recognize there's a lot of flux going on in there. There's a lot of history. But it's neither this is all your fault and it's neither this is all their fault, right? And yeah. so that neutral place is, is one of the things I really love about the book and about uh, your work in general. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of overlaps between your work and my work with Creative Giants. Like, we've seen a lot of the same trends, and we could probably say standing tall and playing big or near synonyms, mm. you know, synonyms when it comes to that. Um, your work is primarily focused on women, and you're far less likely to be burned at the stake than I am to talk about the female experience. So, <laughs> um, what is it that makes it hard, or what, what are the specific challenges and patterns that make it harder for women to play big? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I think we're still socialized to be good girls, to always be likable, to make sure we're being nice to everyone all the time. Um, And then we run into a problem in our careers when we want to do big things, challenge the status quo, make uh, unpopular or controversial decisions the way leadership requires. And all of those things are pretty hard to do while being likable good girls to everyone all the time. So that's a big issue for women. How do we fully share our voices in the world um, while at the same time navigating all these social norms around what makes us likable or acceptable to others? Um, and I think also, you know, women struggle with. Uh, self-doubt with not seeing themselves as leaders because that's what we see reflected back to us still, unfortunately, in our culture and in the media. So we have a different kind of journey to make. Yeah, um, I have to talk to women about leadership because, um, well, I'll talk to everyone about leadership. And it's like, there's not this monolithic version of what leadership means, right? You don't have to be General Patton. You don't have to be like those archetypes that we have there. And so the question becomes, what type of leader do you want to be? And what I notice is a lot of tension around authority and power that come up with women. Like in one hand, they they want it, right? And they don't want not to have it. But having power and authority and things are really uncomfortable um, in that sense. And so in some ways, they push away any concept of leadership because leadership is so tightly tied to authority and or power. Um, What have you seen with women on that one and how do you help them with that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I talk about when I'm talking about the Playing Big program, which, you know, is my is what the book is based on and has been the core of my work. um, If I'm, let's say, describing it to a reporter or I'm describing it in my bio, I'll call it a leadership program for women. But you'll notice if you go to the uh, page about it that the individual woman is going to read to consider whether she wants to join. I never call it a leadership program for women for the reason that you're talking about. Most women go, that's not what I'm looking for. And their def- their image of leadership is one person standing above on an org chart, you know, a group of others, and they don't want to be in that role. They don't want to be in that role, I think, for reasons that I would say, um, you know, ha- there's a light and a shadow side to their reasons. The light is that they see how power has been abused and they're very sensitive to that. And they also can often be very relationship oriented. They love people's input. They love collaboration. They don't want to be in a hierarchical relationship because they kind of know that's bullshit in a lot of ways, right? Um, On the other hand, the shadow side to their not wanting to embrace leadership often has to do with I don't want to stand out from the crowd. I feel safer conforming. I've been conditioned to, you know, as Sheryl Sandberg has talked about, never be bossy or be seen as thinking I'm better than others. So both strands, I think, are at play. And I think it's, you know, it's both good for women to be challenging our traditional pictures and notions of leadership. And it's good for them to look closely at, you know, what what am I really resisting there that um, my abilities and life may be asking me to step into. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, something that came up as you were talking um, was just around heteronormativity and the idea that, you know, here we're talking about men and women. And we recognize that there's a spectrum, right? So I think the assumption between you and I that we're talking about sociological norms as opposed to essential traits, right? So there are some women who are going to be more masculine. 
some men that are going to be more feminine, things like that, if we can use that language. I'm curious, have you gotten any pushback from women around the um, ways in which you're framing the discussion around playing um, big, especially for women? You know, there are, there are things that um, there are things that certainly come up, but I have to say I haven't gotten a lot. And I, one of the things I'm really proud of about the framework and the tools that I use is that I've always had a very um, racially diverse group of women um, in my course and um, gay women, straight women. And I, in the beginning years, I would often um, talk to those women individually after and just say, hi. I'm a straight white lady, so I just want to know, you know, am I being totally colorblind about something? Was there anything in the course that alienated you? Do we need to be talking about race more um, to check on that? Because I understand that I've got my blind spots based on where I'm coming from. And I really, um, you know, would have never wanted a woman to walk away from the course thinking Tara's a white girl and that was a course for white girls. Um, so... And what I found actually is that the the tools we're using are they're just such core it's such basic uh, core psychological work that women from really diverse backgrounds were able to apply it and found it very helpful um, applying it to whatever their playing small struggles and contexts were. Um, so, so yeah, that's been great. Most, you know, what I usually get pushed back against is before people know my work, they are like, really, do I, does everyone really need to play big? Like, can't some people just play right sized? And I'm exhausted and overwhelmed already. And are you asking me to do more? And so I often have to do some debunking and explain what I mean by playing big, which is you're going for your real dreams for your life and that might in your career and that might look like playing big to someone else and it might look like playing small to someone else. It might look like not accepting a promotion. It might look like ramping down your corporate job and you know starting to do spend more time painting in your attic. And what matters is that you identify what playing big really is for you. And often because because the traditional career career world was designed by men for a certain kind of um, typical male breadwinner, striving male norm situation, when women start to play big, they do things that on those terms look like playing small or opting out of the system. Um, so, you know, so we have to kind of, we, uh, we talk about what playing big really means yeah i get a lot of pushback on that too because i'll often say do epic shit and people think like epic is huge and i'm like yeah actually one of the most epic things you can do is figure out what you're here to do and what that looks like and live and stay true to that that's really hard because you have a system of people telling you how to live right and expressing biases and we pick it up by osmosis and like you know, who, there might be other people who love traveling the world and writing books, but if you want to have a garden in your backyard and watch your tomatoes grow, and that's really what what life means to you and, you know, having a good community and being quiet, like, that's fantastic. Do that. Because to go against, you know, the tide of your culture to decide what's true for you and, and decide what's true for you, that's amazing. That's that's what so many people don't do. Yes. It's really easy to do a bucket list that looks like everybody else's bucket list. Yes. One of the things I noticed when I you know was in business school and um, 
really immersing myself in a world of people who had very high high profile and high powered corporate jobs was that they were all obsessed with adventure sports <laughs> and you know and and over time talking to them I understood that part of that was like they weren't actually doing epic shit in the core of their lives and so they needed to literally to get a thrill you know risk their lives every weekend and you know i i personally think if when you really get real about what you want to do with your life and you start doing it even a little bit like that gets so much more adrenaline flowing including the fear part right the fear and the excitement um than skydiving does and if you feel like you need to skydive to make your life exciting there's probably some other questions you have to ask about what you really want to be doing you know mo- with with your time yeah I haven't written about it a lot, but I talk about the happiness offset that happens when you start either playing small or doing epic shit and whatever that means for you, or excuse me, playing big. Um, And I call it the happiness offset because you realized how much money and time you were spending trying to do all these other externally oriented things. And that when those no longer nourish you and you stop and you find those simple daily joys that come up and those simple things, you don't have to make six figures. You don't have to do a lot of these other things because you basically bought out of that system. And I'm not trying to say that there's anything wrong with the status quo. In fact, there are plenty of things right with the status quo as it goes. But, you know, there's this happiness offset because you don't have to save up right. to jump off a plane, right? You don't have to wait three weeks to do all these types of things. It's like, you know, to go back to growing tomatoes, like you can grow your tomatoes, like you can go to go to wherever you get your tomatoes and do that or play with the kids or go to a park or whatever that looks like for you. Um, wake up at four o'clock in the morning and work on your novel. Who knows, right? Yeah. And one of the things we talk about in the book is callings and the importance of listening to your callings, which is part of what we're, we're really talking about right now. And my definition of a calling is it's the assignment that an individual gets to bring love or light into the world in a particular way. And sometimes we get an assignment to grow a beautiful tomato garden. And sometimes we feel an inner sense of assignment to launch a tech company or to really shake up the status quo in our industry. But the practice is about listening inward to what callings am I receiving right now? And usually those show up with a particularly vivid pain or frustration about something in the status quo that just, you know, that frustration that won't leave you alone, that you feel you're somehow assigned to change it, or a vision about how things could be different in some aspect of the status quo. And I know, you know, your listeners, those creative giants, get a lot of these. Um, And we tend to often resist them and resist the most important ones and have a lot of trouble trusting them and trusting that they're really meant for us. While we're talking about listening, um, I was really interesting or hmm, I found it fascinating that you talked about the the distinction between, and you're going to need to help me with the pronunciation, um, Pashad and Yira. um, And how those two different forms of fear um, have different ways in which they talk to us and they mean different things. Now, one of the things that I found interesting about that is um, it kind of parallels the difference between distress and eustress. The body's response to stress is about the same, right? Whether it's good stress or bad stress. Unfortunately, people, when they start standing tall or playing big, like sense a little bit of stress, that's a sign that something is wrong and they stop, right? And I think um, Pashad and, Yira, and um, Yira are, they have similarities. So 
I'll let you talk about Bashad yes. and Yira and what they are and, and why the distinction is important. Yes, yes. So they're, they're two words. They're actually uh, biblical Hebrew words from the Old Testament. Um, and it's Pachad and Yira. Thank you for checking. Um, and and I came across them, the, the terms, reading a beautiful book by Rabbi Alan Liu, who um, was a contemporary rabbi who unfortunately passed away not that long ago. Um, who identify that both of these words are used for fear in the Old Testament. And the definition of pachad is that it's the fear of imagined or projected things. So this is our overreactive, worrying fear of what could happen. It's, you know, oh my gosh, I think the plane, the, the, the plane might crash, or I'm going to totally make a fool of myself if I give this, this speech. Or um, nobody is going to comment on my blog posts, whatever. You know, it's our overreactive fear imagining what could happen. Uh, there's another kind of fear that shows up in the Old Testament, um, and the word used for that is yira. And there are three definitions of yira. It's the feeling that overcomes us when we are inhabiting a larger space than we're used to both literal space or, or metaphoric space. It's the feeling we get when we suddenly come into more energy, possession of more energy than we're used to having. And it's the feeling that we feel when we're in the presence of the divine. So when I read that, I went, wow. And I, I realized that a lot of times when I was sitting with my clients and we would uncover their real aspirations for their life or career, I would always, you know, there'd always be that moment of reverence and that special thing in the air, right? That, you know, Charlie, I'm sure too, from talking to your clients, when someone finally gets to the core truth and speaks it, um, that amazing stillness that comes into their voice and that comes into the, the shared space. And then I would watch as that fear cloud would really come over and they'd start talking about, wow, that makes me feel really afraid. And I had always sort of attributed that to typical fear, like, oh, change is scary. Vulnerability is scary. Scary to be yourself. And when I read that description of Yura, I thought, no, you know, that's what's happening. They're, they're in the presence of the divine because I believe that core truth in us is sacred they're feeling more energy than they're used to because they're connecting with what they're really passionate about and they're inhabiting a larger space um, emotionally. And, and the, the key, what's important about this is that when we know the two different kinds of fear, we can start to respond to each really differently because when we feel yura, which is the feeling that we were just talking about, that's actually an amazing sacred moment that says, hey, you're on the right track. And so all we really need to do is welcome the feeling, savor it, and kind of learn how to breathe through it and keep going. When we feel pachad, that overreactive fear, then our response needs to be really different because pachad will tell, be telling us lies about what's going to happen. And so we have to find a way to uh, move past it or not believe in that voice. You know, one of the things I love about your work is that you focus on the nitty gritty of communication, right? So, I mean, it's easy to say, talk this way versus that way, but you actually get into words that we use just, you know, actually. Um, 
I was just thinking, like those types of things that, that women end up saying frequently. I think a lot of people end up saying, but again, your work is on women. Um, you know, with a lot of the work that I do, it's it's with executives, it's helping them craft their own way of leadership and communication that's specific, direct, firm, but also warm, right? And it turns out that warm is easy. <laughs> it's those other three that can be really challenging, right? Um, why is why do you think those three are particularly challenging for women and just standing in that space and saying, here's what needs to happen versus, hey, I was thinking that like maybe we can just do this instead of, you know. Well, there's really interesting sociological research that and psychological research that shows that when human beings encounter a new person, they immediately assess that person on two dimensions. They're asking themselves, is this person warm? Like, do they seem friendly and sort of emotionally safe? And are they competent? Are they warm and are they competent? And you can understand how that, that has a really old evolutionary basis in us. If you imagine us, you know, out meeting another tribe, we need to know, like, are they friend or foe? And if they're if they're friend, how helpful are they going to be as a friend? And if they're foe, how dangerous are they going to be as foe, which is how competent are they? So where things get really fascinating is that it turns out that any uh, minority or low status group in a society ends up being stereotyped as either warm or competent, but not both. And this happens across uh, ethnic minorities. It happens... Um, for women. Um, and you can think of, you know, the housewife stereotype or like the stay at home mom as warm, but we don't think of her as super sharp. Um, or grandma is warm, but not super sharp. And then, um, maybe the woman executive is super competent, but warm might not be the first word that comes to everybody's mind when they think of that image. So that puts women in this really tricky double bind. Cause we know we're kind of always navigating, um, how how do I express my competence? How do I do that direct, firm communication without a cost to my likability? Because, whoops, I've also been socialized. I, I want to be people to think I'm nice and I want to have a nice relationship with people. And so it's tricky for us to learn how to do both. And as a result of that, what often happens is women dumb down how competently they come across in order to seem more likable. And what I talk about in the book is how we often do this in negative ways. Like, I was just thinking, I'm not an expert on this, but um, do you have a second? Just I need a little bit of your time to tell you about my company. You know, all these kind of diminishing things um, to seem more likable. And instead of using those kind of negative cues, we want to actually use positive cues yeah, to convey warmth and competence. Yeah, as I was going through there, I noticed how competence. many of those words show up in my language. That was interesting because um, I have a military background and I learned very quickly that there's a time and a place, right? Because I could talk to anyone in that environment. I'm like, hey, go do this. Done. Period. Fine. Finality. Um, you go home. You don't quite say that to your wife or you don't quite say that to, you know, your um, your husband's, you know, wives and or, you know, pretty much your husband's either. But there's these contexts that we have in which um, people can, um, in which our language will change. And so that's always been super fascinating is that I've gone from a very direct language, go do this, it needs to be done by this time, any questions, okay, done, <laughs> to yeah. would you please do this, thank you, you know, th those types of things, which on one hand 
increases the warmness factor. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it diminishes some of that command presence. But the interesting thing about it is males get away with it, right? Because we don't go ahead. And it well, and it's perceived differently in men. So if a man says, um, "I'm just checking in," that's not going to um, uh, make him sound as tentative as that would be perceived in, let's say, a young woman writing to her team members about that, or as you know, as defensive um, as "I'm I'm just checking in" can sound, um, or uh, you know, if. If a man is saying, does that make sense? You know, that's not going to be perceived as much as he thinks he was incompetent as in a woman just because of bias and stereotyping. So it, it does have a different effect. But I would say please and thank you. Those are positive ways of conveying warmth versus, you know, um, I know this was a bother to you, so I really appreciate you taking the time doing it or something like that that, you know, is maybe more um, self self-diminishing. Communications. <laughs> and anytime you find breakdown in organizations or in people's lives, always go to communication because you're probably going to find at least mm-hmm. one, one thing going on there. Um, yes. There's a lot of other yeah. things going on, but rarely do you find um, find organizational dysfunction or personal sort of dysfunction without communication breakdowns. They kind of piggyback on each other. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Alrighty. So you're an amazing half of a power couple with another influential thought leader. And power couples often have some unique challenges in their relationship and how they navigate the personal and professional. Um, has that been true for you and your partner? And how have you managed with that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm i glad you're asking about this because I think that I've been really lucky to be in a marriage where I feel like my career is really supported. My husband is... Uh, just loves to see my success in the world genuinely. And it's very important to him. Like if I lost myself, that part of myself, you know, he would be, that would really not be okay with him, which I have to say, I don't think is always true in a lot. You know, I, I, I think it's not always true. Um, and he grew up with, in a, in a home where his mother and his father both worked in the same field and both had prominent posi- um, positions. And so that's really his framework. And I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very appreciative of just how much he supports that aspect of me as well as other aspects of me. Um, but yeah, it's pretty interesting having two, you know, two writers in the house, um, two kind of creative entrepreneurs in some sense. And we've made the choice to, we, we don't really link ourselves publicly. We don't share each other's work on social media a lot. Um, we don't talk about each other a lot publicly. I think because we both feel that our careers are, they really are kind of our individual self-actualization. And we both want to be on that path as individuals if that makes sense. Um, and, um, we also really value keeping our personal life private and separate from that. I think that distinction is really important. The one that you're talking about separating your own, um, your own careers so that they're not necessarily intertwined. You have your own identity and things like that. I try oftentimes to talk about people with like 
two independent trees, kind of like money trees. You know, if you've ever seen money trees, I think I have one over here where they're two independent plants that kind of wrap around each other, but you could actually pull them apart and they're two distinct one with their own character and their own, you know, um, they just happen to live in the same pot, it's the same nourishing pot, right? Yeah. Um, which is much better than like the parasitic thing or the one that's, you know, um, pushing the other one out and competing with it. So, um, yeah. And you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting because I think if I have so much more compassion now, if you've ever looked at one member of a couple and said, you know, well, they're only having the success that they have because they're married to so-and-so. I mean, maybe there are some cases that that's true, but I have found that, you know, the couple times in my career where I felt like, you know, I need to talk to that person. And I know my husband, you know, knows them or knows their organization. And so maybe he can, you know, make the connection. I would say maybe, you know, once every three or four years or something, something like that has come up. And I always, it ends up being so unproductive that now, even if my husband's super involved with an organization or something, I will go through another channel because unfortunately, you know, I think because of gender stereotypes, if I show up through the channel of so-and-so's wife, my work is immediately discounted. And so, um, you know, I went through my whole publishing process, even though my husband just had a really prominent book, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't talk to any of his people. Nobody knew, you know, that context. And that was really important to me also to feel like I was doing it on my own terms. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I have talked in the past and even I, even it was a surprise to me when I figured out, I was like, Oh, Oh, they're they're in a they're in a relationship. That's that's cool, but it wasn't like an essential part of it, of anything that that we had talked about. So it was very very cool to find it out that way. Yeah. Um. So, what were your biggest challenges in writing this book? Well, I had a baby in the middle of it. <laughs> that was a challenging day. Yes, <laughs> I imagine so. Um. Yeah. So I I um. My book was due and my baby were due three weeks apart and I was editing and revising, um, you know, when he was uh, a little guy and in between breastfeeding sessions and everything. So that was really challenging, but also really wonderful because I loved, you know, when your life has said, it's my first baby and my life had suddenly changed where, you know, you're locked in your house breastfeeding for like 14 hours of the 24 hours of the day going, where did my old life go? And it was really nice to look in my inbox and be like, there's, there's a remnant of my old, <laughs> old life. Look, I have an editor from a publishing house emailing me. Okay. Oh, there's, there's something else out there. Um, so that, that was challenging and wonderful. And, you know, because of that going on, a big challenge for me was having to find a new way to work that was less perfectionistic. Um, I know you talk about, I loved when you said creative giants have the ever higher ladders. And also, because we're so creative and our work is so personal to us, we can kind of get, I feel I've gotten stuck and I see many other creative entrepreneurs getting stuck when they feel like every single thing in their work has to be 150% resonant in their soul. Yeah. Right. So I had to give up on some of that because when you have a three month old and, you know, the um, 
jacket for the South African version of the book is being emailed to you and needs to go to press tomorrow and you don't really love the wording they used on the jacket, but you, is that really the battle you're going to choose? Like starting to really think about, you know, what's, what are, what's really priority and making, lowering my perfectionistic bar, um, was, was really important. Um, and then another challenge was just, you know, it's really interesting to go from blogging to writing a book. Like I believe that a blog post is a particular kind of art form the same way a sonnet is a particular art form where over time you learn what works for readers who are reading in that context and what works for a piece of that length. And then, and so I, you know, I had spent the last five years consistently writing basically 800 word blog posts. And then I had to figure out how do you actually make a 7,000 word chapter remain engaging and have a clear structure for people. So that was an interesting um, craft challenge too. Yeah, I'm finishing up some of my academic work. And um, so on the one hand, I have blog posts and then you have tweets, then you have white papers and then you have short books and then you have these philosophical articles it's like it's 5,000 word why is it so hard but it's just getting your mind wrapped around all of the different conventions and yeah yes yeah um, switching gears that way I don't think um, people appreciate until they do it um, or until someone says hey by the way that's harder and you're like oh it's harder thank you yes, you know? yes. Yeah. Um, yeah so this you might have already answered this question but I'm always curious what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing that I'm currently facing. Um, Honestly, it's, and this is just completely, you know, what pops to mind, it's um, the level of visibility and um, opportunities that are already coming my way as a result of the book are causing me to have to play bigger at a whole new level, and that's causing me to have to rework on all my inner critic stuff and, um, and my sense of my own, you know, enoughness and all of that. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm writing a piece that, you know, pretty much, I don't know if it'll run, but it's kind of like, there isn't, I don't think there is a more widely read publication and section of a publication on planet earth. Okay, let's just put that out there. And yesterday I did an interview for a radio show that has 8 million listeners. Like, okay, so it's awesome. And um, it's, uh, it is definitely evoking my, my inner critic anew. And, and, you know, I teach all this stuff because I care to learn it myself and continue learning it. So, yeah. Yeah, sometimes when you find your great work, you recognize that the great work is like you're participating in it every day and you're practicing it every day. And sometimes it's easy to feel like, I don't know, smaller, feel like a fraud if you're still working on that stuff. But sometimes I think when you get to the core essence of what you do, it's like, I'm going to be doing this for the next however many years I'm going to be alive because it's just that type of thing. And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating when we see that our work that we put out there becomes the work that we end up doing all over again. Yes, totally. And I really believe in that, you know, that, um, we teach what we need to learn that if, for those of us that are choosing our work, we're choosing it because that's the questions that matter most deeply to us that we're still grappling with for sure. 
Um, so you mentioned that it's sometimes harder to voice your contentment and happiness with people because it's kind of expected that we can complain and we talk about challenges like we just did. And that happens to me a lot too, right? And like, I don't, I'm not on social media right now because I'm like, hey, life is good. Like, you know, I'm having fun. It's not, it just feels weird because it's not really there. Like if I were like, hey, this is what's happening and it's bad, people would be like, oh, like. Mm. Um, and so you end up getting quiet. But let's talk about your moments of contentment and happiness so at least we can share it, you know, share it here. So what are you experiencing? Where are you experiencing contentment and happiness these days and weeks? Mm, that's great. Um, wow. Well, you know, I think, and this goes to one of the patterns you talked about with creative giants that a lot of times we're people who start a lot of things and we don't, what I would call, we're not great stewards of them over the long term of our, of the work we've produced and we don't really bring it to scale. And, and that pattern was certainly true for me of like so much creative output, right? Five years of blog posts, you know, all unique content um, and never really uh, n- not taking any of those pieces and developing them into something that could best serve me. And I think a lot of, especially a lot of smart women do this. And I would kind of look around and be like, really? Like, so that guy over there, like, he had one big idea, one, and he, like, has, then he wrote a book about it. And now he's got his, like, multi-million dollar consulting practice about it. And, like, that's enough? That works in the world? Or, like, okay, like, the strengths finder people, I always think that. Like, I'll just call it out here. I'm like, okay, they, they have, there's one core thesis, which is, like, people aren't using their strengths at work. There's an assessment. There's some books about it. And like now they're writing on that for 20 years. And I can tell you, you know, most of the creative, brilliant women I know, like they have 20 great ideas a day, any of which could become a business and a body of thought leadership that would return to them sustenance, financial, emotional, professional for 10 years if they just could stick with it. And I know the sticking with it is hard, but. Uh, you know, for me, it was such a important personal move to say, you know, I've, I've created a really solid body of work to use Pam Slim's term with the playing big curriculum. It's been wildly effective for a thousand women. Sure. There's a part of me that would like to go write 20 other courses this year, but I am going to make a different move and I'm going to bring this work and these ideas fully to scale as far as I can out in the world. And that means doing a book and that means continuing to grow the program and letting this be the focus of my work for a while and letting it support me. Because, you know, that's one way to think of it is we, we do a lot of sewing, S-O-W, sewing, um, as brilliant women. And we don't often, we're not that good at reaping what we sow. So, um, so that's a big area of contentment and, and you know, proud, feeling proud of myself right now that I am sticking with it and stewarding my own creative uh, expressions um, in the world. And then, you know, having, having a baby is pretty amazing, especially right now. He's six months, so he's like a gorgeous, fascinating, smiley, cuddly um, – stubborn strong (laughs) Um, so in other uh, words he's your new teacher uh yes yes totally okay yeah um just in case you didn't pick up on that everyone listening 
one idea like really well executed and stuck with is enough <laughs> it really is and it's way better than a hundred that you kind of half do or don't do so one idea well executed can make and break careers set up happiness everything that we're talking about because i was working with tara or we were tara. talking to each other tara i'm so sorry that's okay i'm gonna start that one again um you know we were we were talking a long time ago maybe three years ago is when when i first sort of stumbled upon you and you were just starting with playing big and you took it and you ran with it i'm so super proud of you for doing that because look you. at what it's look at what it's manifesting yep. and i remember charlie you were like you need to get your own office because i was <laughs> I was working on my laptop and you were like, even Virginia Woolf says, you need a, you need a room of your own. And I'm just like, if a military guy is <laughs> quoting Virginia Woolf to me and telling he's the one that needs to tell me I need my own office. I'm like, I think I really need my own office. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's so great. Thanks. Thanks. So yeah, we all need a place, to, you know, a sanctuary for our great work and it could, you know, it has many different forms, but that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> Okay, if people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you would want them to take away today? Mm. Well, one thing I, that's really salient for me right now that I've been sharing a lot, especially with all the conversation about women and confidence in the news, is that, that self-doubt is one of our big problems as women, but confidence is not the antidote. The antidote is taking action while we're feeling the self-doubt, which is very different than waiting for confidence to come. And um, I, I cannot stress enough how unable we all are, I think particularly as women, but we all are, to assess our own readiness for leadership and playing bigger, to assess the readiness of our work to come out into the world more, we will underestimate that time and time and time and time again. And the gold is in learning how to share our work, even in spite of what those internal voices may be saying about it. Cool. Cool. Well, Tara, thank you so much for the time you've shared with us today. Again, I really appreciate the work that you do in the world because it's needed. So, thank so you. needed. So thank you for sharing your medicine with the world. Where can we find you after this or where would you like us to go? Yeah. So um, I'm at taramore.com, T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R.com. And uh, I think we'll have, probably have the a link with this, but at taramore.com slash book, you can get all the info about pre-ordering the book, which if you pre-order, you get um, some videos from me teaching about concepts in the book and access to some live Q&A calls that are going to be super great. So it's kind of like having a, a playing big mini course at your fingertips along with the book. Um, and pre-ordering is also, if you if you like what you hear heard today, it's just a great way to support the kinds of things we're talking about in the world. Because when a book gets a lot of pre-orders, it means that retailers say, oh, women actually want this kind of content and they stock more books like that on their shelves. So it, it helps the kind of conversations that we're having here um, have a bigger place in the world as well. All righty. Well, thanks so much, and I look forward to seeing how you play big in the world and how your work helps other women play big as well. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much, Charlie. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, 
head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant. <laughs>